Well, last week we broke from Luke's Gospel for one weekend to talk about uh, things pertaining to Father's Day. In fact, we particularly looked at how the book of Titus encourages men to be godly men, holy men. To be a good father, you've got to be a, a godly man. And so we are uh, returning now to the book of Luke. And we, we, it's almost unfortunate that we had to take that break because the last thing that we studied in Luke was the parable of the persistent widow. And we're going to see that today's material actually is very closely linked with the parable of the persistent widow. Each of these parables had to do with prayer and preparing us to have not only the right mindset in prayer, but also the right practices in prayer. This parable that we're going to be studying today, uh, directly after the parable of the persistent widow, teaches us about having boldness and reverence in prayer. And so if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in chapter 18. And we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 14 this morning. Please follow along as I read aloud. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and he prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke begins by telling us the target of this particular parable. Jesus shared it with a mixed group of people, but he was particularly pointing this truth to those among them who trusted in themselves, those who considered themselves righteous while at the same time looking down upon others and despising them because they did not live up to the lofty religious standards and achievements of the first group. The two characters of the parable were stereotypically loaded. People who heard about Pharisees automatically associated some things with them. They associated righteousness, obedience, knowledge of the Word of God. Those who heard the word tax collector would have associated very negative connotations to that group of, of people, of individuals. Tax collectors were those who were considered untrustworthy, unrighteous, irreligious, and greedy. So by now you may have picked up on a pattern whereby Jesus likes to shatter stereotypes. He likes to mention things that are thought about one way and then use them in a completely different way to help people see that things aren't always the way they seem to be. By the end of the parable, we see that the person who was the sparkling religious example, the one with the shining resume of holiness, is actually not the person that we should desire to be like. His prayer begins in the name of God and is framed as an expression of gratitude. God, I thank you that... But quickly we see that the content of this prayer has very little to do with God and much more to do with the person who is lifting up the prayer, the Pharisee himself. 
The Pharisee in this parable is thankful for two things. First of all, he is thankful for what he is not. He's very grateful that he doesn't have to endure a life that many other people in the nation of Israel have to endure. He is not one of those people in the Hebrew society who were most looked down upon. People such as extortioners. Extortioners are those who take advantage of other people's weaknesses so that they can exploit them and make money off of them. This was a serious issue in the nation of Israel and had been off and on throughout their history. Isaiah the prophet, Jeremiah, the prophet Amos, all uh, criticized the people of Israel for extorting those who were weak and vulnerable in society. And so this Pharisee is saying, I'm so very grateful that I don't fall into that heinous sin that the prophets preached against so many times. He's also glad that he's not numbered with the unjust. Those who are willing to break the law in order to get ahead. Now this might have referred to those who are unjust to Caesar, but it's much more likely that he's talking about those who are not fulfilling the law of Moses properly, and even those who are not fulfilling the Midrash, the additional laws that men had added to the laws of Moses so that they would have more opportunities to show the world how very holy and righteous they were. Thirdly, he says that he's grateful he's not like the adulterers. Those who did not have faithfulness, those who lacked self-control and thereby were swept away into sin because of the urgings of their flesh. And then after describing those three individuals, he says, I am also very grateful that I'm not like this despicable creature over here, this tax collector, who in some ways we can see as the embodiment of those three sins I just mentioned. The tax collectors were looked down upon in Hebrew society because of their practices of extortioning their own countrymen. They would often go into their communities. They were hired by the Greek, uh, the Roman government to receive the taxes from their neighbors. They would go into their neighborhoods and they would charge more taxes than they should have charged so that they could give Caesar what was Caesar's, but then they could keep the extra for themselves putting it right into their own pockets. They were extortioning the weak in Israel so that they could themselves become rich off the coattails of secular Rome. These tax collectors were often unjust. They were not ashamed to use strong-arm tactics to receive these monies from their, uh, their neighbors. In fact, we read earlier in the book of Luke where the uh, centurions who heard about uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ asked how they might repent and turn and John the Baptist said, well, you need to stop extortioning these people. The, the tax collectors would often pay these centurions to come in and beat up the Jews. They did not yet pay their taxes. They were acting unjust to their countrymen, to their, their fellow Jews. And the tax collector was also often seen as spiritually deficient, unfaithful, in a way adulterous to God. Because rather than standing up for those who were of the people of God, they were taking them for granted and exploiting them. So in our, our culture, perhaps you would think about this person as a, a debt collector, somebody who you would hate to see show up at your door, somebody that would come at your weakest moment to try to take what little you had left. Who would even let such a person like this into the temple of God? What is he even doing here? This is the attitude of this Pharisee who is proclaiming his own righteousness to this God that he's praying to. Now, the attitude of this Pharisee reveals the inevitable digression of man-made religion. 
Our world has no shortage of religions. Religions abound all across the globe. But every one of them has something in common except for one. All of them were made by the whim of man. But one religion stands as the religion that God has delivered to mankind, that he is to live out according to God's will and purpose and plan. When man makes religion, we see a common denominator pop up almost every time. Man-made religion is a framework that makes it possible for us to prove that we are good people, that we are worthy individuals, that we are holier than the rest. Man-made religion is me comparing myself to you. True religion is me comparing myself to God. You see, God is the only standard for righteousness by which we must judge whether someone is holy or not holy. When we make up religion for ourselves, we tend to compare our neighbor to ourselves. We do this for several different reasons. If I can find something that I'm better at than you, then I get to feel better about myself. If I can make you seem less proficient at following some grouping of rules, then I can feel like I am being effective in life. I am meeting my goals. I am proving something to my neighbors around me, to the community of which I am a part. So man-made religion compares me to you instead of me to God. If I compared myself to God, honestly, it would humble me. But when I get to compare myself to you, now it's a competition. We can see who rises above the rest, who becomes the best of the best and the most elite among the religious people. The judgmental ugliness of this man's self-centered attitude should have the same, <clears throat> the same kind of effect that we feel when we see our children committing a sin that we know they learn from watching us, their parents. <clears throat> if you're a parent, you might have experienced this before, where your kids do something and you go to correct them and then you're suddenly gripped with guilt because you know they're just copying the very sin that you committed. When we see this man pointing down his now holy nose at somebody who is less than him, judging him, thinking less of that man, it should make us humbly shameful of the fact that we have likely done something like that at some point in our own lives. There are probably those around us who we might say are less holy than we are, that we might be tempted to compare ourselves to and to feel good about the fact that we are more faithful than them, that we are farther along in our faith than they are. And this is not the attitude that we should have towards anyone in this world. In fact, we should be motivated to never behave in such a short-sighted way, proud towards others, when really we should be comparing ourselves to the perfect holiness of God. So he is thankful for what he is not as he compares himself to other sinful people, but he is also thankful for what he is. This Pharisee takes the time to explain to God why he is worthy of God's affection and favor. He talks about how he has tithed. And of course, the Old Testament law of Moses required that the people of Israel would tithe, would give a portion of their first fruits to the Lord God. But if you look carefully at the way he describes his tithing, you'll see that he is not just tithing the minimum of what a Jew is required to tithe. He says, I give tithes of all that I possess. Not only of his first fruits, but also of the smallest minute in his life. The Pharisees were known to go into their little window boxes where they would grow herbs and they would take a tenth of their herbs 
and they would go and bring it to the temple and give them in front of everyone so that all would know that they were diligent to follow the law to the smallest bit of the letter. They would even tithe sometimes on the, the, the monies that were given to them in exchange for goods, thinking that perhaps that person didn't tithe on their own money, so I'll tithe on their portion as well as my own portion. They were not content to just be holy. They wanted to be a step holier than the people around them. He speaks about how he has fasted to the Lord, but not in the ways that were required of the Jews to fast. Fasting was something that was done intermittently through the nation of Israel. It was only required of the Jews during one of the festivals, during Passover for one day. <clears throat> but this man says that he fasts twice a week which is an indication that he's following the pattern that had been set by other Pharisees, that on Mondays and Thursdays, he would go completely without food so that he could establish himself as not only meeting the law, but exceeding it, going above and beyond in his holiness so that no one could question the, the degree of his righteous behavior. Now, I want to help you see something, so please open up your scripture to Psalm 26 for a moment. The fact that this Pharisee is pointing out his own obedience and good deeds, that's not really the problem here. That's not really the critical issue. I want to show you why. In Psalm chapter 26, verses 1 through 5, God's word says this. This is David speaking. David is the second king of, of Israel, one of its greatest leaders, a man who is described as after the, the heart of God. And David writes in Psalm 26, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. <clears throat> I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart, for your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. I have not sat with the idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. Do we see here a similar confession of obedience in this Psalm of David that in some ways parallels the prayer that this Pharisee lifts up before God in his temple? David asks for God's vindication on the grounds that he was walking in his integrity, meaning that he had integrity in his actions. He was proving himself to follow the things that he called true and holy. The things that he believed in were finding their way into his practices. He shows that he has confidence in his own heart and that his mind is pure. And he contrasts his actions and obedience to those who do evil and run to sin. And this is scripture, right? This is a psalm to worship God. In the synagogue areas, they would open the scrolls and they would read this psalm at times in worship to the Lord God and in, in public worship together. So David is basically saying, I've been doing what is right, and since this is Scripture, it's not wrong for him to do so. It's not wrong, in fact, friends, to tell the truth about doing an admirable job of following the Lord. We don't have to pretend wretchedness all the time. We don't have to pretend humility by, by acting like all the things that we do are terrible and like we never do anything right. We don't have to have a false pretense like that. God does have victories in our lives. He does good things in our lives. And it's not wicked in and of itself to acknowledge those good things that he does. But there are some very important differences between David's attitude in Psalm 26 and the Pharisee's attitude in Luke 18. In verse 3 of Psalm 26, we see David's 
attention was on something bigger than himself. Though he was doing some things correctly, his eyes were on the loving kindness of God. That was his aim. That was his goal. God's loving kindness was what he was shooting for. And it says, I have walked in not his own truth, but in God's truth. I have walked by your standard, Lord God. So even as David is acknowledging the victories that he's winning in his life, he's at the same time pointing to the standard of those victories, that it is only God's truth that is helping him to achieve these things. How is that different than the prayer of the Pharisee? It's different because the Pharisee begins with the name of God and then every other word that he speaks after the name of God points to himself. He does not even go so far as to say that he's thankful for what God has done to make him holy. The Pharisee rather says, thank you God that I am a holy man, that I am good. He's only interested in bragging about the fact that he has managed to become holy when other poor fools have not managed to become holy. If you were to read Psalm 26 a little further, by verse 11, David makes a request to the Lord God. He says, redeem me and be merciful to me. Redeem me. Acknowledging the fact that though maybe he is making some headway in holiness, even though he is doing some things that are righteous and noteworthy, he still seems himself as somebody who needs redeeming. He knows the depth of his heart And he's asking that God would love him despite the fact that he is not a perfectly righteous individual. He's asking for redemption and he's asking for mercy. Who needs mercy but a sinner? So though while David is is not ashamed to say that God is doing good in his life, he also keeps in mind every moment the fact that he is but a sinner apart from the grace of God. If the attitude of the Pharisees in chapter 18 of Luke shadows Psalm 26, then Psalm 51 is the attitude of the other character in this parable, the tax collector. The tax collector comes in a very, very different manner than the Pharisee as he enters the temple and approaches God in prayer. And in Psalm 51, David has a heart that's similar to that of the tax collector. We are seeing him in Psalm 51 at the point of an all-time low. David had been a great king. He had been faithful. He had been very patient. He had trusted in the Lord, and the Lord had won great victories for not only him, but for the nation of Israel under his leadership. But by the time we get to Psalm 51, victory after victory has led to periods of distraction, and David has not kept his eyes on what is holy. In a time of peace, he has sinned by committing adultery with a woman named Bathsheba a woman who's married to one of his own soldiers, Uriah. And it caught up with him, this sin. Numbers 23.32 tells us that our sins will find us out. They have a way of doing that. And David's sins caught up with him. They found him out. Shortly after this adulterous relationship, he receives word from Bathsheba, just a few little words, saying only, I am with child. This is not just a simple sin that can be brushed under the carpet anymore. It's not a sin that can be lied about and hushed up and forgotten. This is a sin that is breeding trouble. There is a little baby on the way, a baby that should be something to rejoice in. And now David finds himself scrambling, desperate to cover up what he has done wrong, to try to preserve his great name. His initial attempts to deceive his way out of the consequences of this serious sin failed. 
And David finds himself adding iniquity to iniquity by sending Bathsheba's husband Uriah to the front lines of a very heated battle and then instructing his generals to withdraw forces from Uriah. The scenario in David's mind means that Uriah will then die by the sword of another and that is exactly what happens. But ultimately, who is responsible for it? David, adulterer, murderer. We are not finding David at his best when we read Psalm 51. He was a sinner. He was a failure. He was a human being. And when he was finally confronted by the God that he could not lie to, David's heart broke over his sin. He was devastated by how far he had fallen away from the truth. He was brokenhearted by his utter lack of integrity. He had made commitments to God and he had broken those commitments by sinning against his God. This one who had done so much for him, he had heaped dishonor upon his name. And so in abject repentance, David, with a humbled heart, writes Psalm 51. The song of a man who cannot pretend that his deeds have earned him any kind of favor with God. The song of a man whose guilt is absolutely apparent to him. Not just to himself, but also apparent to others. The prophet Nathan had come to him in his throne room and revealed his lie to not only himself, but his court. But it was not only apparent to David, it was not only apparent to his court, it was also apparent to God. And that's what mattered most to David as he pens this psalm of repentance. He knew that God knew his sin. And so he came to him with this humble heart desiring forgiveness. And so we read in Psalm 51, beginning in verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Immediately, the psalmist confesses that he has sinned. Three different times in verse 1 and 2, he asks God to wash him clean from this filthiness that he has brought into his own life. And as he says these things, it looks like it's framed like a command. Wash me clean, blot out my transgressions, but we must understand it for what it is. A desperate plea for mercy, an appeal from the mighty hand of God who alone can deal with the sins that David has no way of dealing with by himself. Only God can grant him mercy. And in verse 3 he goes on to say, For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Like the tax collector in Luke 18. David could no longer deny the obvious. As he came before the presence of this mighty and holy God, he had no choice but to reveal his wretchedness as a sinner before him. He had to confess that he was not worthy to be in God's presence that day. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in, my, in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, your desire, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make uh, you will make me to know wisdom. Notice what David does not do. David does not spend any time trying to convince God that God's actually wrong about his wretchedness. He doesn't try to show God that he's actually a good guy after all. 
There's no need for that. God knows his heart. In fact, he confesses the great depth of his sin by confessing to God, I was even born in sinfulness. I realize this, that from the very grave I have been a sinner. I'm not a, a poor, misguided soul who just fell into sin temporarily, made a mistake. No, I am a sinful man. At my core, I need redemption. This is no one-time failure, no out-of-character deviation. He was born in this sin, and it's something that he must battle against every day if he desires to be near to God. In verses 7 through 15, David's sorrowful heart shifts away from himself to God, and he asks that God would do what only God in his perfect righteousness can do. He asked that he would wash David clean from his sin. Another appeal for that cleanliness that it could only come from his hands. He asked that he would heal his brokenness. Acknowledging that God has punished his child, breaking his bones only to heal him up again. Please heal the bones that you have broken. He asked that God would renew a right spirit in David. That he would once again begin to love the things of purity. That he would begin to seek after the things of holiness and righteousness. That he would restore the joy of salvation to him. That he would no longer seek joy in the, the crumbling things of this world, but that he would seek eternal goodness and be satisfied in it. He prays that, that God would uphold him, that he would sustain him. He knows he's going to have to fight this battle again one day. So he asks him, God, be my strength so that I will not sin like this again. And then he asks that God would deliver him from the guilt that weighed heavy upon his shoulders from this failure. We even need God to remove that sense of, of worthlessness from us and show us that we can be worth something through his grace. Verse 16 says, For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. In contrast to the Pharisee who came to give an offering of his own praise to his own deeds, this man, this tax collector, comes with an attitude, with a heart that matches that of David here. He is not trying to impress the Lord God. Instead, he's trying to come before God with all that he has, a broken heart and a contrite spirit, humbled by the truth of his wretchedness humbled by his dependence on this God who alone can save him. This is much more representative of the approach that the tax collector takes in verse 13. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The prayer of the tax collector is an honest plea for God's mercy. He knows that he needs God to relent of his wrath or he will be rightly punished for what he has done. We see the correct way that the tax collector was standing afar off. We see that he was so humble to be near to God that he didn't feel himself worthy to come close to God. When that Pharisee who was praying condemnation on that tax collector prayed, he didn't pray about the tax collector who was sitting right next to him at the altar. The Pharisee went boldly forward the tax collector was so humbled by his grief of sin that he stayed far back. He stayed away from the front of the sanctuary and prayed silently to himself. Perhaps he did not want to defile the other people that had come to the temple to seek the Lord God. Perhaps he felt like 
the closer he got to God, the more he wouldn't be able to bear the weight of his own sin. This despised, rejected man beat his chest. There was probably a couple of reasons he did this. It was a sign of frustration that he directed against himself. Have you ever felt that way when you wanted to overcome sin and you just couldn't? It kept, kept getting the best of you. And you wished you could, you could punish yourself somehow and train yourself to do what is right, but you just couldn't do it on your own strength. And so per, part of this beating of the chest was likely frustration directed back in upon himself for his failures and his shortcomings. It was also probably indicative of the fact that he realized he deserved beating. He deserved some kind of punishment for what he did. The wages of sin are death. And this man realizes that his very life was something he did not deserve. So he comes to the Lord God with no pretense. He is not deceived to believe that all of his good deeds will somehow outweigh the bad that he knows he has committed. He's not convinced himself that because he is not as wretched as some other terrible people in the world, that makes him good enough. No, he doesn't come to God like that at all. He offers no argument for himself to God, but rather cries out solely based on his belief that God is merciful and is good and therefore might have mercy on him if he only begs for it. This is an appeal. It is not a command. It is a desperate plea. He is beating his own chest. He's not trying to beat God into submission with his loud prayers. Neither does he try to hide his sin from God, but confesses it outright. Friends, let's pause for a moment and ask in self-reflection. When we think about the way that we pray to our God, do we take time to confess our sin to Him? Do we take time in, in the moments when we bow our head and we close out the distractions of life and we think about our God and we speak to Him and to Him alone, do we make sure that some of that time is spent confessing to God our deep need for the same mercy that this man is hoping and praying for at the temple. Friends, we are quick when somebody says, oh, I'm sick. Oh, I will pray for your sickness. And we go to God and ask for God to heal that. When somebody else says, oh, I have a need, we will go to the Lord and we will pray for God's provision in our lives. But do we see how important it is to come before our God and to remind ourselves of our state, that we need grace because we truly have offended this God who is so greater than us. There is no condemnation for those who are now in Christ Jesus, says Romans 8.1, and, and that is absolutely true. But we should, however, be ever aware of the fact that our relationship to God is depending and hanging solely on His mercy for us and the fact that He is willing to pay the price for the sins we have committed against Him. Confession rightly glorifies God for the changes that He is bringing about in us for the salvation that He has given, for the holiness that He is providing by the Holy Spirit. So this parable teaches us the right attitude to have as we approach God in prayer, hopefully persistently as we learn through the parable of the persistent widow. We must seek to have an honest view of ourselves before God. We cannot come in with this glorified, self-aggrandized view of who we are before God. Let us not approach the throne thinking that surely we must be one of God's favorite kids. That of course we're going to get the thing that we ask of because we have impressed Him so much with our good behavior. But rather, let us come examining our hearts and realizing that without God's help, we can't even know all of the sin we've committed against Him. 
Part of our appeal to God should be, God, help me to see the things that I'm doing right now that dishonor you that I don't even know that I'm doing. Lord, I want my heart to be more pure than it is today. And I don't even know what to change, God. Help me to see what needs to be different in me. I don't want to stay wretched the way that I am. So we must have this honest view of ourselves. We must come before him bare and naked in a sense. Not hiding anything or covering anything up, but letting the Lord know that we understand our wretchedness before him. We must come humbly acknowledging our sin. Confessing to him that we have broken his commands. And I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, God does not want to have a generic relationship with us. He does not want a whole lot of acquaintances to come near and to know his name, but to know nothing more of him. He desires to be near. He knows us from the inside out, and he desires for us to strive to know him. And part of that intimacy of relationship, the longer I know you, the more you know about my business. The more we dwell together in, in, in living, the more we will understand one another. And the same is true of God. When we pray with Him, when we talk with our God, we need to be clear about the details of our lives. Don't just go to God and say, please forgive me, I'm a sinner. He knows that. He knows the details too. But it will benefit you more to pray your sin to Him. God, I'm a sinner because this week I have looked at the wrong things things that were not holy, things that I should not have put my gaze upon. God, forgive me for this. Please wash clean my mind and make me think of things that are holy. God, I, I pray that you would forgive me because I blew up at the kids today and it was not even their fault. I was frustrated from other things and I took it out on them because they were weak. Please, God, forgive me for, for taking advantage of their weakness, for for handling wrongly their little hearts that are so impressionable, God, please forgive me. Help me be a better mother. Help me to be a better father. Lord God, I, I, I lied at work today. I said the wrong thing because I thought it would benefit me. And that was wretched because you are a God of truth. God, please give me a greater desire to speak the truth even if the consequences are hard. I don't want to be like my enemy who deceives whoever he can deceive. Let me tell the truth, God. You see the difference in, 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 between praying like that and praying, God, I sinned today. Please forgive me of my sin. Now let's talk about what I want from you because that's how we're good at praying. Let's reflect on this, this humble publican, this tax collector who knew that he needed to come honestly before God, who was willing to confess his sin to him. We must not lose sight also of our serious need for grace as we come before the Lord our God in prayer. We should come seeking what really matters, not just food on the table, not just health for our bodies, but grace for our souls. That we would realize that without the grace of God, we have nothing. And so foundationally, we need grace more than anything else. Friends, two men went to the temple to pray, but only one man prayed. One man lifted up a nice speech about how good he was. The other man sincerely appealed to God, recognized his greater goodness, asked humbly for mercy to be poured about upon him. Only one of these men really prayed to the Lord. This parable also has a lot to say about not just prayer, but also about our salvation, specifically about how we are justified. Verse 14 
I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house. It says down to his house because the temple was built on a hill. So literally, geographically, when you left the temple, you were going down to where you lived. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you find it interesting, friends, that the Pharisee in prayer compares himself to another man? It says, I am greater than him. The tax collector does not compare himself to any other man. He simply says, I do not deserve the grace I'm asking you for. God, through Christ, then compares the tax collector to the Pharisee and shows that his humble state meant that he was worthy of justification when this Pharisee was not. Friends, when God saves us, so many things occur in our lives. There's a succession of miraculous works that God does in us. First of all, we are regenerated. In in regeneration, God changes our soul. He brings us from spiritual death into spiritual life. That hardened heart that could not understand His truth, that hardened heart that thought God owed Him something, is now changed into something soft and malleable, something impressionable. God puts a heart into us that can for the first time truly see our sin. A heart that can receive the things of God. He brings life to us. And then we are converted. Through conversion, God grants the necessary gifts of repentance and faith in Him so that we can be united to Jesus Christ and enjoy the powerful benefits of His saving grace. So we are regenerated and made alive. We see our sin And then in conversion, we repent of our sin instead of embracing it. Instead of justifying the sin, now God justifies us, thirdly. Regeneration, conversion, and then justification. God legally declares us righteous by applying the sacrifices of His Son, Jesus Christ, to our debt of sin. Now we are new. Now through repentance, we have received the gift of God's Son, Jesus Christ, We are made right before God and we are forgiven of our sin. The righteousness that was Jesus is now ours as well. It applies to us. So God doesn't look down and see us as filthy little sinners. He does not see us with the wrath that He rightfully sees sin with because sin has been eliminated from us. He sees now in us the righteousness of the one who gave His life for us. Are you here today? because you want to know God? Are you here today because you recognize God is greater than any other living being? Though you don't fully understand Him and you can't fully understand Him, you have a driving desire to want to draw nearer to Him. Are you here today because you desire to be close to God? You desire to experience more of His perfect love and grace. This one who is completely true and faithful. You want to understand Him better. Apart from the work of Jesus, you cannot hope to approach this God. He is the one and only key that will get you near to the Lord God. There is no other way to draw near. If Jesus does not lay down His perfect life for you and take it up again on the third day, then you have no hope of being near to the God we are praising and adoring, to the God we sing songs to, to the God we give an offering to, to the God we serve and follow and try to reflect with our very lives. If Jesus is not your atoning lamb, if he's not your perfect,
perfect sacrifice, then you might to some degree from a distance see that he is amazing, see that he is great, that he is worth pursuing, but you will not be able to pursue him. You will be as on the outside looking in without Christ. There will be a great impenetrable wall built between you and the holiness of God and it was built sadly brick by brick with every sin you committed against his holiness. That might very well describe what was happening spiritually to this first man who ascended the Temple Mount to pray. He thought he had a pretty good plan to draw near to this God that he knew a little bit about, this impressive, unparalleled God. He would do good deeds. He would live his life in such a way that he was marking off all the boxes of obedience that he could imagine, not just the ones required by the law that God had given, but also he would go beyond that and fulfill the law that men had given to him. He would impress God. He would catch his eye. And once he presented his praiseworthy resume, his track record to God, surely he would be seen as above the normal, the normal sinful order of the world and God would declare him justified. Worthy to be in God's presence. Worthy to be near to the living God. Brothers, do you see the flaw in this plan? Do you see the error in the thinking of this Pharisee? Do you see what was wrong with this man's approach? His salvation was totally dependent on his own work instead of God's great work. Turn with me for a moment to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. The book of Romans does some amazing work for us to help us understand this doctrine of justification, what it means that God has made those who trust in Jesus Christ right before the eyes of God now. Listen to what Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4 says. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for God, or to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Do you see how this has played itself out in the life of that Pharisee? That Pharisee who is ignoring the righteousness of God. He's coming into God's temple, into God's holy house. And instead of expounding on the, the greatness and the glory of God, which he should do, he's preoccupied with telling God how great he is. Man-made religion turns man's eyes back to the self. Whereas the one true religion turns our eyes to God. Helps us to see his glory and His righteousness. Justification, friends, is not something that we can accomplish by our own deeds. Why not? Because in order to be justified, we must be righteous. Not by man's standard, but by God's standard. And what is God's standard of righteousness? Nothing short of perfection. To be with a perfect God in a perfect heaven, we must be made perfect. And that is not something that a flawed, sinful man or woman can ever hope to do on their own. Justification is only a gift that can be given by a God who is himself perfect and holy in every way. For this reason, 
the tax collector leaves the temple with a sore chest and a justified spirit. He didn't trust in his own righteousness, but sought instead the righteousness of his God. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Father God, we are grateful to come before you right now, Lord, and to know you as you desire to be known in your word. You say to us, Lord, that sin is serious and we must take it seriously. You say that sin is universal and so every one of us must take heed to the impact that sin can have on our lives. You tell us that because you are holy, our sin separates us from you. The only way we can be near is if that sin is dealt with. Praise be to you, God. You are the only one who can deal with it and you are willing to deal with it through Jesus for us. And so I pray, Lord God, that as we read about this tax collector, that we will not just see his brokenheartedness, but that we will see the joy that must be his as he leaves this temple knowing that God has given him the request of his heart, Lord. He has shown him mercy. You have shown us mercy today as well, Lord God. For those of us who know your son Jesus, that brick wall of sin has been broken down and we now have access into the throne room. And so I pray, Lord God, that that you would add today not just boldness to our approaching you in prayer, but you would add to it humility and honesty. That you would add to it a willingness for us to be clear with you about our need for you so that every time we pray, Lord God, we would be growing in our great dependence upon your provision. We need your spirit, Lord God. We need the word of truth to guide our steps and direct our path. And so, Father, we ask that you would give what only you can give today. We love you and we praise you. And we pray that this gospel message would save many in the world around us as we inch closer and closer to your return, Lord God. Let us wait in anticipation. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ who will come one day soon. Amen.